Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to this very special episode of the Empire Podcast in association with Disney Plus. But this one isn't just an Empire podcast, folks. This is another one of our fabled co-pros with our beloved sister podcast, the Pilot TV podcast. Hello, James Dyer. Hello, Chris Hewitt. Hello, hello, hello. And this one is dedicated to FX's epic new samurai saga, Shogun, which is streaming now exclusively on Disney+. And joining me to talk about it is the aforementioned James Dyer. Hello, James Dyer, once again. And we're also saying konnichiwa, hello to Nick Dissemblian. Hello, Nick. Konbanwa. What does which, that mean? Uh, means good evening. So it's uh, very appropriate for... Uh, Not really for 12.44. <laughs> yeah. It is quarter to one. We're in the afternoon, so that, that's, that's totally fine. We're heading uh, into the evening. Nick and I, as I'm sure we will get to at some point, have been to Japan. We've been to Japan together. We went on holiday to Japan uh, ooh, a long time ago now, Nick. A long time ago. We were young and full of hope. Young and full of hope. uh, And simply one of the greatest places on earth, one of the best holidays Mm. you could ever hope to have. But I was not fluent in Japanese uh, at the beginning or indeed by the end of that. I have big, I have big holiday envy. Actually, I'd love to go to Japan. I have to be said, this series, although it is filmed entirely in Canada rather than actually in Japan, like it really desperately made me want to go to Japan. Just like it's just, oh, it, it looks wonderful. It is. It's amazing. Uh, We'll get to that. We will get to that. But first, this is about Shogun, the 10-part limited series, which is on Disney+. And before we get into the show and talk around the show and talk about all things pertaining to the show, let's hear from a couple of people involved with the show, shall we? First of all, you're going to hear from the showrunners, the married couple in real life, who are also the co-creators and showrunners on Shogun, the Shogun runners, if you will, Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo. James spoke to them recently. How was it, James? It was great. It was great. I enjoyed it immensely. I got to nerd out with them over this. Excellent stuff. So here we go. Rachel Kondo and Justin Marks and James Dyer. Enjoy. One of the things about this that that really struck me is, so I'm a massive nerd, love speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, very much my jam. And watching this, even though it's a historical drama, it feels to me as much a fantasy in some ways as something like Game of Thrones, because you have this incredibly strange, let's be honest, realized world with these curious customs. And then you're sort of seeing it through the eyes of this stranger going in there. And it does feel kind of magical. And I wonder whether that was at any point something that crossed your minds when you were when you were putting it together. Rachel's Rachel's probably dying because as as husband and wife, she's like, this is just like this is just the question that Justin's been waiting for. For five years, <laughs> I'm, I, I'll pay you after this episode for <laughs> not this very question. You know, it's it because uh, thank you. Um, I think that uh, speaking only for myself in this case, I, I come to genre probably from the same place that that you do from how it sounds, uh, which is um, I love science fiction, uh, the world building principles of science fiction. I think. By and large, you know, when when you look at some of the most interesting period drama, uh, they're very often uh, constructed um, in the way that good science fiction is constructed. Uh, honestly, like the best example I can think of, which here's a here's a thing that was really in our bloodstream when we were writing uh, Shogun um, and sort of rewriting it over the pandemic was watching uh, The Remains of the Day, mm-hmm. which actually feel like is is one of the best science fiction movies never made um and you know a book in that sense too 
uh, because of the way it sort of understood that if you're going to bring an audience to a world, you really need to build it from the ground up and understand by and large that audiences are coming to it from maybe outside, whether it's outside of culture in the way that we came to this story and, and sort of you know, being aware of our gaze in the window that we're looking at um, or through. Uh, but also, even if one is Japanese, you know, looking at it from a place of it's 1600 Japan, I mean, there's a different sort of value set. And so rather than, uh, you know, we had to learn all of these details. I mean, Callum Puente, a writer producer on this show, had to build an instruction manual that was uh, 840 pages long, almost as long as the book itself <laughs> yeah. uh, to, to do it in, in very close detail. And, uh, and so, you know, we wanted as much as possible to show our work, uh, so to speak, you know, if you're doing the math problem analogy here. Um, and so that yields something I think that works by the world building principles of what science fiction is. How did that work? Like using that manual, did you, how did, how did you sort of like incorporate that into what you did? Cause as I say, I think it's a, it's an important thing. And a lot of fancy authors will do that. They'll create their sort of world building Bible before they start with their narrative, because the world is as important a character as any of their protagonists, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we called it. Our Bible. And the interesting thing was that the Bible was the manifestation of the evolution of the process in which we uh, had to, to learn how to tell the story, right? And so as we learned how to uh, marshal all these details, all this 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 uh the stuff that 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 was new to us we had to learn and build the mechanism with which we use to tell the story yeah it's it's a good because it's like someone asked recently well can you share some of that and there are pages that we shared um you know with with just various groups or people who to who wanted to see it but so many of the pages as i like flip through the stereo instructions of this show um are actually just like very like inside baseball, like, you know, what Callan will write on is like, you know, that the way we shot it uh, in week one, you know, this, these were the mistakes we made here, here and here. And this, so this is what we learned and how we do it differently. And all those things, it's like, that was really, you know, it was this learning document. It was this growing document with Frederick Prinz, one of our historical advisors, a professor at the University of Kyoto, you know, sending uh, uh, artwork paintings from the period with circles of hairstyle. It's like more like this. This actually is more of a Chinese hairstyle and something to avoid. And this, you know, and all these kind of just like very close annotations that uh, are probably exhausting to anyone, you know, outside of it. But um, the crew, you know, really did just kind of rely on these annotations uh, as we went through it. Now, I haven't read the book, not just because it's like, what, 1,100 pages long. I mean, it's a very, very famous book, uh, but I've not read it myself, but, and I'm not sure how um, the author gets you into this world. But I thought this was done very well in the series, that one of the first things we see is obviously we see Toronaga at that sort of council meeting, and one of his sort of vassals speaks up, and there's the seppuku sequence. Now, he doesn't just kill himself, he ends his entire line. And it's so extreme and so shocking and so alien that I think more than anything else, it feels like a statement of intent. Like this is so far removed from our experience of society and life. And I wonder, was that, I mean, was that lifted from that section of the book? Did you bring that up? Did you introduce it? How did that come into it? Uh, it's a great question. We we pulled great that question. we pulled that forward um, from a later portion uh, of the book uh, as a means of really introducing Toranaga um, and you know at the kind of uh, start of his plight. Uh, but it also and the seppuku in the story 
really evolved, uh, our understanding of seppuku evolved as a writer's room, as, as um, you know, it was a predominantly Asian American, um, Japanese American uh, female uh, writer's room uh, that we had on this show. But to understand seppuku is a real journey from outside of that culture. And we worked with uh, consulting producer Mako Kamatsuna, you know, kind of for months trying to get closer to what does this scene mean? Yeah, you can't just read about the concept and understand it. You have to kind of live with it and think about it when you're not thinking about it, you know? And I also think that we brought up that scene too in order to uh, introduce the character of Mariko. I mean, that the the scene that follows with her... Um, essentially supporting her friend and having to sacrifice her, her small baby. I, I mean, yikes. I mean, that's, that's like you said, it's, it, it's tough. And I love how you put it though. It's, it is, it's, it's like our world, but, but several degrees removed. And then what is that like, you and, know? And so the key challenge for us, cause that scene that Rachel's describing that follow-up scene that came after the council scene um, was an invented scene uh, on the show. It was something that, uh, that Rachel wrote to introduce Mariko and, um, and to introduce the value system. And what we were really after with that was, you know, it was very, there were many bad drafts that we would put together of that scene. I would say, you know, when it came to, what we're reaching for. And we realized over and over again that we were exoticizing this behavior pattern, you know, from the outside, because like anyone who doesn't come from this culture, I think we were really fascinated by it and and says, well, this is very different from us. So we want to just show it for all of its differences. What we're very proud of in the end uh, with that scene, um, you know, when you look at Anna Sawai, Moeka Hoshi, who plays Fuji, their performances in that is, and, and Jonathan Van Tolkien, who directed it, I feel like it's a really, in the end, it became just something fundamentally human. Um, and it wasn't, I hope, uh, an attempt to just like, um, you know, fetishize this behavior that would be willing to do something that we can't from a modern day perspective understand, but actually to kind of get to a human truth about it, which is that no one wants to do that. No one wants to do that. But there was a war going on and there was a cause and there was a purpose. And there is a these people, these women in this case, are reaching for meaning and agency in their situation. And this is for the least powerful of, of uh, a group. This is maybe one way to exert some control over the path of their own destiny. And that became the kernel of understanding for us of the entire show thematically you know, of how to kind of build it was, was the journey towards understanding that. I love that scene with Marika. In fact, if I'm honest with you, Marika is by far and away my favourite character in this entire show. I think it's just, she is so complex and her struggle is so real and so integral to the plot. And actually, on a purely thematic level, she's more important than Blackthorn by far. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's in many ways an observer and she is a part of this. You know, she's up to her neck in it and she's so, I mean, Anna Sawai is, is, is wonderful in the role, but it's just, it's so interesting that we see so much of that character whereas and it bearing in mind i was extremely young when the uh, richard chamberlain <laughs> series landed on television but i i have a very dim recollection of her being sort of more of a love interest type character in that story whereas in mm -hmm. here it's integral and this story 
is a three-hander, right? Like, this is not a white saviour story. It's it's three characters giving three very distinct perspectives. When you sort of set out to do this, was it always like, right, this is not Blackthorn's story. We're telling this story. This is a Japanese story first and foremost, and, you know, he's there. We, we always went to the book, truthfully, um, and the book very much. Uh, we're not – I'm not too sure about the series, but the book very much – has this as the three hander. This is this is a this is a very uh uh thick braid of three parts that are constantly moving and swirling and 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 looking to each other for for what's next. And and so it, we, we didn't go into it thinking one story was going to be, you know, we always knew that obviously this is this is Shogun. This is Toronaga's the the we're under his umbrella of course um but very much so a three-hander so yeah i i also think that you know mariko sort of stole uh a lot of the narratives or from our hearts um you know as as the story developed because she is so crucial to it and and her journey is so modern in in some respects um that it gave us that permission to do so i think in insofar as the story uh involves Blackthorn, you know, and then you, you mentioned the sort of the white savior narrative, you know, that was definitely one of those tropes that we were hoping, you know, we're always in search as writers of new cliches, right? And and not old ones. And that was something that felt like, I mean, there's a representational aspect that is obviously problematic that we wanted to avoid. But I think the, the greater sin was just, it was a story. I've seen that story so many times before and just so bored by it. I wouldn't show up as an audience member. And it's it, because Shogun was such an impactful work that over the years, so many stories have derived from it in, in period as well as science fiction, you know, I think have sort of taken that and and what new things are there to say in that world you know because of the legacy of of James Covell but you look at the book and and the book is already doing more with it you know and it's wonderful without without you know getting into sort of very specific spoilers i'd say by and large the the journey of that character in the book as well as in our show is a, a journey of a character who realizes ultimately all of this probably would have happened whether he was there or not and and the the sort of the arc is a spiritual one to accepting what you can't control and accepting your your place in that. And, and I think that's a very beautiful modern journey that was set forward in 1975 by James Clavell. Um, so we were we were really intrigued by that component of the book. Yeah, I love that aspect that he's anything but a white savior. He's just a white guy who's there, right? Like, because he's not, he doesn't actually bring a great deal. It's not like The Last Samurai where he learns the Bushido code and somehow he's John Wick. I mean, he can't yeah. even, he's, he's at one point, he literally says, I'm a sailor. I can't use a sword. You know, I can't resist, can't resist when you bring that up. They're telling one of the stories, which was really one of our favorite moments in the writer's room, because one slight change from the book was, I think, in, it's in the business of episode four. Uh, when Blackthorn is kind of introducing uh, weapons to uh, his Japanese allies, you know, it's a sort of famous part of the book. And and I think that we really honed in on that as like, what do we do here? Because it feels in, in the book, it was actually muskets that he was kind of introducing. Now you look historically and, and muskets were introduced, you know, through the Portuguese a good 50, 60 years earlier than the time of this story. And so historically we were kind of up against a reality that said, this is not, that we can't, we can't play into this, this trope that we've probably seen before. Um, and it was our historian who, who presented the idea, but you know, canon, the Portuguese weren't as good with canon as, as the English or Dutch. And so that would be something new if you wanted to do that. And so we decided to actually bring that process into the show where you 
have Blackthorn trying to sort of talk about tactics of muskets and like, no, we know all this, dude. <laughs> like we, yeah, we get it. We've been here. Like, give, give me something new. And so Blackthorn actually has to go through that process of like, like a grifter who's trying to think of a new con and be like, cannons, let's talk about, you know, and play that. And so it's where the history actually gave us new cliches, right? And 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 to kind of lean into that fun. Um, but sometimes, you know, you have to make those little adjustments for a modern audience. Yeah. It's nice. I mean, you mentioned the modern audience. I always found it interesting that obviously the 80s show was it wasn't wasn't subtitled and it wasn't Japanese, but you had Orson Welles doing this incredibly surreal narration through, which was just nuts. Um, but what I love about this is, I mean, this is roughly 90%, I would say, in Japanese, isn't it? Pretty much, I would say. Uh, and it feels so... So I'm one of these awful people where I often find subtitles a barrier because they pull me out. They make me aware that I'm watching something and I'm not in something. And I did not have this here uh, at all. And I wondered whether it was... I don't know quite whether it's just the Japanese is just a very, you know, emotive, powerful language, but or it was the setting. But I think it was the tone. This didn't feel like an outsider's perspective of the story. It felt like you were being sort of embraced and welcomed into the sort of Japanese culture. And and maybe it was the mindset of it, but I, I love that. And I, like I said, I've not read the book. The book, I guess, is an outsider's perspective on Japan. And I wondered, what did, what were you hoping for from viewers in this? Because it feels like, as you're watching this, certainly by the time you're in episode sort of three, you feel like your perspective is a very Japanese perspective. You start to see the Westerners as barbarians, as I think, you know, the engine does as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now I'm getting suspicious because somebody, uh, this is a question that I would pay somebody to ask. <laughs> uh, you know, I do think that, um, it, and and it's like, how many days do you have to talk about subtitle theory for us? Uh, you know, we really, um, because honestly, like my biggest pet peeve is someone who, uh, you know, grows up on uh, foreign film uh, and, uh, you know, just devours these movies. And of course, the lens that you do it through is going to be through subtitles, right? But my pet peeve about it is that you, we have always looked at subtitles as an afterthought as a culture, in, in my opinion, in terms of how we engage with the story. And then when we do that, of course, it's going to feel as if they're a nuisance to the process because you want to engage with the performance. You want to engage with the story. And so we really began to look at uh, like navel gaze. Uh, what can we do to change that? And one of the things that we really did, and this, I mean, you know, John Langreff was part of this conversation early on about how do we do this? Because um, we want it to be subtitled. We want to, you know, let these characters speak in their own language. These actors perform in their own language. Um, and so, you know, it, the, we said, well, we have to be aware that the mechanism, 50% of the experience of some of those scenes, it's going to be the experience of in some way meeting them. And so one of the things, the easiest thing, you know, I can point to is to say, we, uh, we have to color time the subtitles to be constantly aware of what background they're in front of so that you're never fighting with where you are. And that means that our, our colorists would look at every frame and every word and sort of see that. The other was that we would bring those subtitles higher into the frame than anyone had done before by localization so that what I call the dive, where your eyes are going down to the bottom of the screen, was minimized. Which I noticed that because I, I found them much easier to read than I normally do with subtitles. I don't know why we do, don't do this more. I think it's because we let our cinematographers decide where the word <laughs> should be too much. But our cinematographers framed knowing that there were going to be words at the bottom um, because we were doing this in you know uh, our own culture uh, and not not shooting this in Japan. So we knew that the, the lens was going to be through that. Um, and then uh, lastly, 
you know, and this is the couples therapy component of it. Um, you know, we went through a very detailed translation process uh, for this show. It was written in English, translated by a team in Tokyo uh, into Japanese, then polished by Kyoko Moriaki, a Japanese playwright, to make sure that the language was converted into a Jidaigeki Japanese. Um, that then Hiro Sonata, our producer star, as well as Eriko Mugawa, another producer on the project, would comb through that to sort of make sure there's a little modernity in the Japanese and this sort of works quickly. And these are, we don't speak this language. So we had to really take their word for it as collaborators. And, and then the actors would perform it and add their flair. And then what we would do through a Japanese assistant editor, we would, instead of going off the script, we would translate those words back from exactly what was said. And then Rachel and I, in the process of post, would look at our script and look at what actually came through in the telephone game and then decide how do we marry them for intention? And where do we do line breaks across the subtitles? What words should hit when her eyes blink there? Because I hope my my deepest hope with this show is if you watch this the way it's intended with the subtitles on screen, you're going to get a better experience than you've ever gotten before because you're seeing words and performance married closely that we're saying like, it shouldn't be an exclamation point there. It should be a period there because he's not yelling. He's actually just sort of speaking that and it shouldn't feel false, uh, manufactured, you know, and, and the page we took from that when you speak to genre was, you know, I look at some of the best subtitles I think anyone's ever done. You look at the subtitles for Star Wars movies, you know, I think they do it really well. We kind of, you know, took a font that reminded us of, of, uh, of a Star Wars font um, to, to achieve that. And, um, you know, and, and so, yeah, it's my hope that sign up for these this show and you're going to get something that hopefully maybe we change the way um, it certainly changed the way I'll do subtitles in the future. You know, no, but now we're getting to the second part of your question is, uh, you know, what what do we hope viewers receive from all of this? And I, truly we're just hoping that they they can sense viscerally that the the care and the consideration that was put into every moment of the show and 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 I'm hoping that viewers will bring the same level of care in in an openness to it right and to to receive this and because it's different it it's and it asks a lot of you as a, as a as a viewer but Boy, did it ask a lot of us as people who tried to help bring it into the world. So, um, and then hopefully it gives back. Yeah, um, because of you know the and and this gets back to your thing about your question about the book. There was such interiority in the book. Clavel was inside of these characters' heads, and to deny them a voice, to deny them a language, to hold them at arm's length, just because it's a culture whose language we don't speak, um, felt. Like, why would we tell that story today? Um, you know, and, and you're you're completely uh, denying yourself as storytellers, all the layers of this wonderful book. Uh, so, you know, the words were a means of getting closer to the, uh, I don't know, the secret heart uh, of, of the characters themselves. And and then it could be then it could be much uh, richer an experience than we got to see before. Wonderful. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And the the, the thought of that, I, this makes a lot of sense to me now, having watched those subtitles and seeing how they were put together. I'm going to watch it all again just to, to really take that in. It was incredible. But uh, guys, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, very much appreciated. Thank you. Bye.
Okay, that was Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo talking about Shogun. And now let's hear from one of the show's stars, Cosmo Jarvis, who plays John Blackthorne, who is an English sailor, a pilot, an engine, if you will, uh, who is in many ways the audience's eyes and ears into the world of 16th century feudal Japan. And uh, James also spoke to Cosmo Jarvis. Here we go. Cosmo Jarvis, enjoy. Hello, James. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm not too bad at all. That's a very nice outfit you've got on, by the way. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> um, so I guess watching it, like the first thing that kind of struck me was the sense of scale to this. Like it is massive. Like it feels like this huge production, you know, anything on a scale with really anything that you could name. And I was just wondering how prepared you were for that. Like how did it, what you read on the script relate to what you saw when you set foot on that set? Well, I mean, I suppose you, you, when I first read it, it was I knew that, that it was going to require a lot of resources to um, manifest, but it wasn't until actually witnessing the resources that uh, I, I I got a sense of every everything had been sort of meticulously crafted and thought about and built and designed in rigs were made for special effects and villages were built for sets and greens were dressed and presumably brought in from elsewhere i mean there was a there was and the stunt teams and what they had done and and how the the horse the animal wranglers of every kind i just usually i'm used to do it i have only really done sort of smaller um smaller i guess indie type films where the stories the scope of the story or or, or the environment that the story takes place in is is re- re- relatively smaller and and this was the first time that i had to consider how to adapt how i'd worked previously into something that was so vast and had such broad strokes of narrative how much if anything did you know about 17th century Japan like are you a history buff did you have all this stuff in your head beforehand I am now <laughs> I, I only had a sort of a, a very superficial understanding of anything Japanese really just the, the residual things that are present in I guess UK pop culture and American pop culture that are sort of left over from Japanese or other things but not certainly nothing from I had no understanding of the complexity of the country and 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 the sort of power struggles that were going on, which that which Japan was caught in the middle of, and I didn't I didn't even know about the Catholics and the Protestants really. I didn't yeah, so. know any, about anything, so I had to had a lot to sort of familiarise myself with. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? Because you've got the there's a, like an inherent xenophobia, isn't there, in that period of Japan where they didn't really allow outsiders in. But then you've also got the fact that the Portuguese are there, so you've got this other kind of weird foreign influence in there. And so when the Anjin gets there, you know, he's got these sort of Japanese overseers looking over him, but he's also got essentially his sworn enemies, the Portuguese. Yeah. So he really doesn't seem to get on with at all, right? No. Um- and I mean, I guess understandably too. They they were. I didn't know that the that the the Vatican sanctioned the awarding of land to the, the distribution of land between them, just simply because, and because it fell within a certain parameter. I didn't. I didn't know that. And I guess. I guess yeah. It's it's one thing being faced with your sworn enemy, but then being faced with your sworn enemy when you're also a a prisoner of another potential enemy is quite. A, 
a d- difficult thing to navigate. I mean, I mean, it is. It's a, it's a totally it's a totally unique sort of like period in history. So my my sort of first uh, encounter with Shogun was obviously the eighties show with Richard Chamberlain. So a long long time ago. It still kind of sticks in my head though because it was one of the first TV events that everyone was watching. Like, it's a it was an absolute sort of like sort of like fixture in everyone's lives. But I remember I remember the one thing that sort of stuck out for me is that it's obviously Toshiro Mifune who played Toranaka in the original Ooh. series. Uh, there was a thing where Richard Chamberlain said. When uh, when Mifune had his armor on, like when he had his his Toranaga face on, no one would dare talk to him. Like no one would go to him. He'd just sort of growl at them. He's always in character. He never left that kind of Toranaga mindset because Toranaga has that imposing, aloof quality, you know. And and I thought that Hiroyuki Sonada kind of really, really tapped into that. But presumably, he was slightly more approachable <laughs> in between takes. Uh, yeah, yes, it's, it's interesting to hear that because yeah, I mean. Sanada San was very different. He he was uh, a very very sort of um, effortlessly commanding without being overbearing in any way. And he, I guess, he instilled an example of of just kind of he cared so much about doing making this project and and all the different facets of the project and 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 he would really concern himself with maximizing everything and you know could only so much pride in it and 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 love for what we what we were making that that uh it was just sort of something that that just kind of rubbed off on everybody because you 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 wanted to you you really wanted to do good work because of the example he was setting and aside from just being a much more experienced actor and somebody who's been in this industry for such a long period of time and as a as a younger actor it's something you see and you're like it's always great to learn from these people but he he did have an incredible command of everything but it but it was it was just his sort of presence alone it wasn't it wasn't overbearing it was just sort of this like loving nurturing environment where you just where, where everybody was encouraged to really just do do their best and make the best work they could which is obviously an ideal environment to kind of work in, you know? And you've got a huge yeah. ensemble cast here. And and what I like about this story an awful lot and is that when he comes in, sort of the Anjin isn't, you know, he's not a white saviour character. If anything, he's he's like the opposite. Because he's, he's not, he's far from useless, but in many ways he's kind of an observer, right? Like he's not, he's not like he came in and he revolutionised the way they all fought, despite bringing his cannons with him. You know, I like that it's very much a Japanese story and he's... Absolutely an observer and like he's he's kind of sucked into that culture i mean did that sort of surprise you about this story i felt this series had much more of a japanese feel to it yeah like the, the book changes its perspective frequently across so many different characters sometimes even within the confines of a single chapter so the other characters have always been the substance of the book overall and 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 Blackthorn's just what has always been just one component of that. Maybe he's the first, you know. Maybe he's the the introductory viewpoint. But but the purpose of the book is that it develops and evolves beyond just his viewpoint, and and he finds a context within something much bigger than himself that's already going on when he arrives. So I think that what I guess this show does is. Is is maximise the viewpoints that were in the book, and and also sort of authenticates them in in a Japanese way, because in the book there there, there wasn't there was not this level of Japanese. That obviously these characters in our adaptation are speaking 
speaking properly. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, we we yeah, he's he's there and he does have a purpose, but he's just a he's really a compo- he's a component, not a component without an arc entirely, but it's really about how all of the different characters and uh, in in the show and the book amount to a sort of a, a great happening and it's yeah it's about how you know all of all of their all of their actions and relationships amount to to something new and pivotal for japan um but but going back to to your character obviously he's based on a real guy isn't he william adams was the i believe the historical yeah. figure like what did you find out about him well that he existed was I suppose the first thing, because uh, I, 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 I remember going a couple of weeks w- without making the connection between William Adams and John Blackthorne, and then I looked into William Adams and what he went on to achieve after the time constraints of our story have ended, um, at a time where Japan was closed off, and he he did do some pretty astound- astounding stuff, particularly for an, for an Englishman in, in Japan at, at that period, in that period, he negotiated unique trading rights for two dutch ships to come to japan a year which at, at the time was not not a privilege that the portuguese catholics had been afforded so he he did some pretty astounding stuff and um and it must have taken a a fairly um fairly unique character to to have forged relationships in that way so but i didn't i couldn't take him too literally because I was uh, before we started. I was very much aware that this is a, it, as well as being um, sort of hopelessly intertwined with what hopefully would be a fairly authentic historical experience. It was also a piece of entertainment that demanded a, a character, and and the character had a purpose to fill within on a scene by scene, episode by episode, and across the story basis. And so, it was a case of sort of treading a line between not allowing. The, the research to interfere with with the dramatic requirements that of of the script i guess yeah uh, cosmo thanks very much for your time it's much appreciated oh thank you so much for speaking to me and have a safe onward journey okay that was cosmo jarvis who stars of course as john blackthorne in shogun and now let's talk about shogun shall we guys and of course this is based on an epic novel by james clavell like a doorstop I can confirm book. because I I didn't know the series was coming last summer. I should have, but I didn't. And I chose this book randomly to take on holiday with me. I went to Croatia. Mm-hmm. I, I rather rashly packed this book and two others. <laughs> two two, uh, two Thinking, items of clothing. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> it's, it's well over a thousand pages. And uh, spoiler, I did not finish it. <laughs> I was still reading it in November. Um, but it is, it's, a, it's a huge, huge story. Yeah, this is a legendary book, isn't it? And it's been adapted before, uh, we should say. In 1980, it was adapted for American TV as an epic. I mean, again, this is an epic, epic series. That was also pretty epic for the time. But also it was, I mean, following on from Roots, I think it was one of the very first instances of proper event TV. I think a third of all American households watched Shogun when it aired in the 80s. So it was a massive deal. It was the the rise of the introduction of sushi restaurants to America is attributed to Shogun, the TV series. Wow, really? Apparently it was so huge and so influential that it transformed American culture in a way. And like James said, a third of the country were watching it. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. I, I can't like recommend that original series because it takes a really odd perspective. So unlike the book, it's very much from Blackthorne's perspective. You're like you're in his head. So much so that the Japanese 
in the original series isn't really subtitled. Instead, you get, and this is absolutely true, Orson Welles does a kind of a narration. He sums up what is being said. Well, Toronaga has just said that, you know, it's like a really, it's a really odd device. What I love about this show is it immerses you in the Japanese culture to the extent where a lot of it is subtitled, about 90%, I would say, this is in Japanese, mm-hmm. subtitle, but mm-hmm. it feels so organic and it feels very welcoming. And I feel like this, instead of giving you that outsider's perspective, from Blackthorn's point of view, it gives you a very Japanese perspective. Like you feel immersed in that culture, you feel part of it. And as Blackthorn himself becomes more acclimatized to Japanese culture, I think we do as well. And it just feels really, really organic. I, I thought that was that was amazing. Like, did you guys? Yeah. Like, did you get sort of drawn in by that? No, totally. And it really, and much more so than the book as well, the original novel. Mm. Uh, this really steeps you in that culture. It brings you into scenes, and and certainly Blackthorn is a major character, but it is not entirely told through his eyes. And I think that's a great improvement. I think it opens up that world and and draws you in, and and it's mm. really interesting, different perspectives. Yeah, there's a great moment in episode two. We shall say that you know we've all seen differing amounts of the show, so I have chosen just to watch the first two uh, for this. The first two are going to be hitting Disney Plus just after this podcast drops so that I stopped there and I want to be watching it on a weekly basis from now on. James, you bulldozed ahead as is your nature. Yes. Uh, and Nick, you've watched about five or six? Five, yeah. you watched five five or so. Uh, so I'm I'm only up to episode two, so no spoilers, please. I haven't read the book, so no spoilers for what happens after this. But there's a really, really great scene between um, Hiroyuki Sanada, who plays Toranaga, and Cosmo Jarvis, who plays Blackthorn. And they both have translators but gradually the translators fade into the background mm-hmm. and then you just cut mm-hmm. to Cosmo Jarvis and Hiroyuki Sanada looking straight at the camera and talking to each other directly. I thought it was a really beautiful device. We've seen lots of things like that over the years. There's that lovely moment in Hunt for Red October where the camera pushes in slowly on their lips and then where well, they're speaking Russian and then it changes almost mid-sentence. imperceptibly to English mid-sentence. And there's another one like that in... Valkyrie, where Tom Cruise is in reading out a letter in German and then it just changes to English. It's stuff like that I think is really, really great at, at getting you into this world and, 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 and becoming acclimatized to this world because this is a world that is completely and utterly alien and hostile to Blackthorn. What's great about this show and the way that they present it and the way that they, they take the time, Marks and Kondo, they take the time to establish... A, all the different factions who are warring, but all the different characters as well. We get to see all their points of view. Do you know what? And this genuinely, I, I believe these are the best subtitles I've ever seen. Because, and I, I, I couldn't work out why. Like when I watched this, came up in the interview with the, with the showrunners. But when, when I watched this, because I, I historically always have difficulty with subtitles because they pull me out of things. And I didn't with this and I couldn't work out why. And he, and I don't know why I didn't twig. And I realized this, I guess, subconsciously, but they're really high in the frame. Did you notice that the subtitles are really high? They're near the middle of the frame and they're very clearly blocked with a black background. So they're very, very readable. Uh, and they were very, very specific about when those subtitles should appear. Like it should appear when he finishes this syllable, or when the camera pans to this cut. Like they were, they weren't just put on. They were directed very, very carefully at the storyteller's intent to mm. to do what you need them to do. And as a result, they feel so organic. So you almost feel like you're just understanding the Japanese because you don't need to move your eye line down. 
You don't need to separate yourself from the action to read the subtitles. I thought that was a genius move. It's Absolutely, really, it's really skillfully done. I mean, and it's bold as well. I think there's a confidence to to committing to, as you said, like ninety percent of it, maybe even more, being in Japanese with subtitles in a big, expensive, prestige show like that. And I think it really pays off. Like draws you in. No awesome wells required. No, <laughs> exactly that. And because like, if you're not a subtitled person, you should not be put off by this. The one inch barrier. That's right. That's right. As uh, Bong Joon-ho famously called it. Uh, but this time they put it in the middle of the screen. So, and it was a different font. And I, I, I don't know if this came up in your interview or not, James, but uh, apparently it's the same font as is used Star in Wars. Greedos. It's Star Wars, yeah. yeah. They were very heavily inspired. They thought Star Wars did, uh, Justin Marks in particular, thought Star Wars did subtitles extremely well. And so that was the main inspiration. So yeah, they picked that font for that reason. And, and we'll get a Greedo cameo later on. McClanky. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Greedo shoots first. But it is, I mean, it reinforces the idea that, you know, they're leaning into sci-fi and it, this feels a bit like a sci-fi. Yes, it's a historical epic, a period epic, but this is a world we haven't really seen before. 100%. So this this is something I brought up in the interview as well. It's like, I, I approached this, or I think one of the reasons I was drawn into this so much was that there was like a paper-thin separation for me between this and something like Game of Thrones. Like this felt like a fantasy as much as that does because, you know, while it's historical, it's and so, based on... And based on real people. Real yeah, people, they're all yeah. based on real people. You know, loosely in some cases. William, this is, William, we, should, yeah, we should say it's set in the year 1600. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's when it starts. And uh, William Adams is the name of the real-life navigator, mm. you know, whatever mercenary, whatever you want to call him, who landed in Japan and... I was going to say what happens to him, but I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> but suffice to say, he's kind of slowly accepted into Japanese society mm. and 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 finds himself taking on a whole new role. But yeah, it really weaves real history together, but makes, as he said, makes it feel like, and lots of people have compared it to yeah. Game of Thrones because it brings, it's so fascinating. The, the rules and the kind of the codes of this particular society are so uh, specific mm. and kind of so unlike modern day, you know, certainly anything we've we've experienced. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating kind of and they do a brilliant job world building and setting up yeah. that across and you're still learning things in later episodes that will pay off. Yeah, and you're right. It's gradual. Like you're gradually introduced to more of this culture. And I like that it starts out, there's a seppuku scene very early on, which is deliberately pitched to be very jarring and alien and upsetting and make you realize how far removed this is from like everything we understand as society. But then gradually you start to understand the society. You understand the nuances of it. The characters let you in and you start to really feel a part of it. And it, by the time you get to like episode five, episode six, it feels perfectly natural. I'm not sure mm. if that's a good thing, but it really does. And I thought that was very, very deftly done. Yeah. And what kind of the things that kind of like may look uncivilized at first, you realize that this is a very, very civilized, you know, and then in contrast to the England of 1600, where he comes from, which is just, you know, London is just a big pit of mud and, (laughs) and, 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 you know, a bog and it just, you, yeah, they do a great job of it. Yeah. The scale of the thing is, is kind of mind boggling. There's a, a wonderful stormy sea sequence towards the end of the first episode, which is really, really well done. And there's a lovely reveal of what the city of Osaka looks like also. So there's a lot of bang for your buck here. But it is, for me, it was about the small details, the small details of the world building, um, the majesty of the rooms, the majesty of and the costume design. And I know that uh, Hiroyuki Sanada, who was also one of the producers, was very, very uh, dedicated to making sure that all those those elements were right, the costumes were right, and 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 whatnot, and and Marks and Kondo, 
were very, very attuned to making sure that they got everything right as well. And the dialogue also, where they would, they wrote their scripts and then they would translate them into Japanese mm. and then they would send it to a Japanese co-producer or someone, a supervising producer who would, who would essentially a historian who would double check it and make sure that it, it, it chimed with the way that feudal warlords worked and the way that Japanese society worked in, in that day and age. And then they would translate it back into English and they would do that for every character. And they would make sure that everything, everything, every I, every T, everything was ticked off. The, the approach, the meticulousness is incredible, especially given that Marx and Kondo were slightly reluctant, I think, initially to get involved in this. And then they were drawn in by the complexity, I think, of, of Clavel's world. There's stuff in this that is, is mind-blowing. I can't wait to finish the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very adult story. Like it's it's you know it's quite a surprising one because it, it's very talky in the best way. But it, it's about character, and that's what I think this focuses very much on. Like you, it's really understanding the nuances of these characters. And it's Anna Sawai, who plays Mariko, I think her mm. character is absolutely enthralling. Just really fascinating. You gradually start to understand what her background is and how integral she is to the to the overall storyline. But her dynamic with Torunaga uh, and how she approaches both. Blackthorn and you know the political stuff because it's a very political show that the you know we should mention it's that the the recent leader has died his heir is not yet of age and there's a council of five regents of which Taranaga is one and these five regents are all scheming to kind of essentially overthrow the overthrow the others uh, you know essentially wanting to be pronounced shogun which is like an absolute ruler mm. so it is it is very very you know it's it's four dimensional political chess and Blackthorn's important to that because of his ship. And the guns that come with that ship. Yeah. And otherwise, you know, it's it's not a question where they just would kill him immediately. He he has a purpose and a use. It becomes, yeah, there's a there's a kind of a broader battle. So between the people on the council are kind of scheming against each other. But then there's the religious element as well. Mm. And uh, Blackthorn is a Protestant. And, you know, he's up against the Spanish and the Portuguese. Uh, and the, the Catholic, Catholics. And the yeah. Catholic Church. And the two different churches have got their own kind of agendas so there's a lot of different agendas at play, and I think it's um, it is a complicated story. And I think I was wondering if they were gonna simplify it a lot because the book is very knotty in places, and it, it's a lot going on. It's very dense, but actually they've kept almost everything, um, but they've just really uh, boiled it down so it's easy to understand. It's so big you can see why it works. You know, the first the 1980s show was huge as well. I think the episodes were about two hours long. And this as well, 10 episodes, about an hour long for each one. The first episode is a little longer. You can see why you need 10 hours to do this. This could, this could not be done as one movie. No, it could be. Yeah, no. I mean, it's actually quite brisk considering how much they yeah. got to get through. Um, they do a great, it's a, they do a great job of adapting it. The, the, uh, the opening of the book is a lot more on the ship and there's a big build up to him arriving, but they get through it very fast. It's very like grabby first mm. episode. Should we talk about some of the cast? Certainly. So Hiroyuki Sanada Legend. is, yes, uh, who is um, seen most recently producer. in John Wick Chapter 4. Yes, yes right. Yeah. Yes, he's indeed. fantastic in that, in, the, yep. in the, the Japan part of that story. Yep, and he's been in things like The Last Samurai and Avengers Endgame, where West he shows World. up for, yeah. uh, for a few seconds uh, as well in that. And generally speaking, you know, I read an interview with him where he said that after The Last Samurai, he moved to L.A. and and wanted to, you know, explore new opportunities. And those opportunities, I think, by and large, you know, he's been used sparingly in some of those movies that we talked about and 
you know, he's great in John Wick Chapter 4, but he exits stage left pretty early in proceedings. But in this, this is the first, I think, real slice of Western entertainment, I think, to really properly use him. He has a, a dignity and a natural grace uh, and authority, which I think works really, really well for Tornaga. It's a hard role as well. I mean, not, not least because he's following up, you know, the great Toshiro Mifune, Oh, who was yeah. in the eighties um, version of this? So, yeah. but but um, it's a hard role because Toronaga is very keeps himself very much to himself, and that's even like something they discuss in the story. Of he has his own schemes and plots, but he doesn't share them with anyone. Mm, he's so really he's opaque. Very still, yeah. Opaque is a good word for it. And so that's a really hard thing to convey on screen because he's very still. He doesn't say much. Great Falcon, um, <laughs> but yeah, he he really is. Um, Gripping, like whenever he's in a scene, you're kind of your eyes are drawn to him, and he really has a presence. And um, yeah, it's interesting that he was in the Last Samurai because mm. not miles apart in terms of the story, but just the way that the story is presented. This is much more a showcase. I think the main difference here is the Last Samurai does still have you know wisps of that white savior idea, doesn't it? That Lip, Tom Cruise's character comes in grounds, and becomes a super yeah. samurai. I love the fact that Blackthorn is screamingly inept. Like you know, he has no. He brings nothing to this party whatsoever. Uh, and I think that's really good that he's an observer and he's gradually subsumed by this wider culture. But he doesn't come in to save the day. He doesn't... I mean, yes, he has a ship that has cannons and that is useful to them. But uh, I, I like the fact that he's still this sort of lumbering oaf, you know, mm. with a heart of gold, certainly. And he's brave. That's absolutely but true. But smart enough to, at one crucial point play an even more of a big oaf right. you know, than he is. Yes. So he has got some nous. He does, um, yeah. And he's, he's got his wiles, but yeah, he's certainly not the swaggering hero who comes in and, yeah. and shows everyone you, how it's done. You get the impression that Toronaga like, tolerates him <laughs> like you would like a pet monkey. You know, like, he's yeah. like, he doesn't think, wow, this guy's got, he's like, yeah, this guy's quite entertaining. Um, yeah, might come in useful. Yeah, but Toronaga's great. He has an imperial kind of uh, grace mm. to him. Like he does, he has this sort of aura in all the scenes that he's in, that you can totally imagine just being just, you, you'd feel deferential to him, I think, if you met him. And then we have Tadanobu Asano, who I think most people listening to this will know as Hogan, one of the Warriors 3, the ill-fated Warriors 3 yeah. in the Thor movies. Um, but he's great in this, isn't he? As well as Yabushige. Yeah, Lord Raiden from uh, Mortal Kombat as well. Indeed. Uh, but yes, Yabushige is great. I love this character because on the one hand, he is part of this wider culture, but he's the one who almost feels the most divorced from this kind of Bushido code where, yeah, Honor's great, but he is 100% in it for himself. Uh, you know, and he's he's a bit wily, he's a bit duplicitous. He's a bit woo, a bit wee. A bit woo, bit wee. <laughs> yeah, he is, absolutely. He's a wheeler dealer. He's, he's properly shifty. Um, but he, like, crucially, like, he comes across as a real sadist very early on, because remember, he boils one of the sailors yeah. alive. And that is the one scene that I very vividly remember from the original Shogun, because it was really upsetting. And, like, it was, it's interesting there, but actually you learn that, again, he's not a, he's not a black and white sort of villainous character. He is very amoral. Uh, he's very complex. And I think he feels hamstrung by this code, this honor, by being tied to his liege lord more than anyone. So he's always trying to kind of slip through the cracks. Mm. He's trying to find find ways out. He's trying to kind of play the game yeah. to find a way out of these binds that he gets himself in. Yeah, he's fascinated, isn't he? Uh, as are we all, by the moment of death. Because that's the moment when... You know, you to see how someone embraces death when they know that there's nothing that they can do to stop themselves from dying. He's fascinated by that, so he's slightly disappointed when the guy just kind of 
dies. Screams and dies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, screams and dies. He wants something a little bit more profound. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a really interesting character to watch because he's kind of uh, his dynamic is that he's caught between two sides and he's trying to play everyone off against each other. Um, he's you know there are two big factions. There's Toranaga and Ishido on the other. Mm-hmm. These two big factions who are lethal enemies, and he is trying to play everyone against off. Trying to play everyone off against each other, and it's really fun. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He is so good, uh, as indeed is Cosmo Jarvis, uh, who has been up and coming, I think, for a while as an actor. He was in the likes of Persuasion. He was phenomenal. The first thing I ever saw him in was Calm with Horses, mm. which is an Irish drama, which came out in 2019. Yeah, 2019. And I thought he was Irish. His accent in that is so good. His demeanor in that is so good. Uh, and so convincing. I thought he was Irish. When I found out he was English, it it kind of uh, threw me a little bit. Because he's great. He's got real young Tom Hardy energy here. So you can see Blackthorn at the moment, you know, when, when he first is introduced into the show. He, yes, he does have smarts. Yes, he is a man of learning. But he's also someone who has a filthy tongue mm-hmm. and uh, a red hot temper. He's a and, man of passions, which yes. kind of often sets him apart from the much more reserved Japanese culture. Like they keep a lot of it on the inside, and he, like, he has no filter whatsoever. He's got a lot of rough edges, and yeah. he's also playing the most British, the most English character of all time because really his is. children's names are Tudor and Elizabeth, <laughs> <laughs> and so he's literally a Brit abroad. And um, yeah, that that's kind of the, the the fun of that arc is seeing him go from this very traditional English guy to what he becomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's great. Uh, Anna Sawai as well, also very good. Indeed, Anna Sawai, who people might know from stuff like Giri Haji, Monarch, and indeed Fast Nine. Uh, but she, like, she plays that character really well. And there's a scene very, very early on in the first episode. You see her talk another character down from taking her own life, and that speech she gives about honor and duty and the kind of the call of death tells you a lot about that character and you know it takes a while for us to find out what her background is who her family is and how she plays into Taranaga's plans but you know it's it's easy to kind of think of her like that she's a love interest but she's very very far from that like it's very much I think it's a it's a triple head of this story there are many many great characters in this but I think Taranaga, Mariko and Blackthorn mm-hmm. tell the three central narratives to this it's a pretty dark backstory it she's is dark, dark. very I mean, dark and she plays haunted well but there's there's flickers of it it's not like she's you know, but there's also a lot of lightness. Mm. There's a lot of different shades to it. And she's, and crucially, she is a Christian convert. Like, she's a Catholic. Mm. And Blackthorn is a Protestant, and they don't get along. <laughs> really? Yes. yes. <laughs> with, with the politics of this, again, it's really interesting, because you've got the, you've got the, in the warring politics of the Japanese factions, but then you've also got this Portuguese element, because obviously the characters speaking English in this aren't speaking English. They're all speaking Portuguese, but we just hear it as English. Because Portuguese and Japanese are two languages that they use. But the fact that the, the Portuguese sort of culture has infiltrated and they've converted lots of the Japanese people to Christianity, to Catholicism in particular, including two of the five regions. Mm-hmm. And that plays a big part in the politics mm-hmm. of the story. So when we hear Blackthorn speak, is he speaking English? He's speaking Portuguese. He's Portuguese. speaking Portuguese. Portuguese. Yeah, he's speaking English when he's speaking to his crewmates, but when uh-huh. he speaks to anyone else outside is Portuguese. I, well, I believe his, his crewmates are Dutch. Oh, so maybe he's speaking Dutch to them, who knows? Or double Dutch. Or, <laughs> that's um, what it was to me. Or double Portuguese. But yeah, but you do get this, this amazing, one of the best characters in the story, Rodriguez. Yes. Um, played by Nesta Carbonell. Nesta Carbonell, yes. Um, A.K.A. Batmanuel from Batman The Tick. Well. 
Uh, obviously, uh, sure, known from other seen. things as well. It's <laughs> yeah. uh, Richard uh, from Lost. Yes, from no, Lost. No, 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 no. He's and, Bad uh, Manuel from The Tick. Sure. He's also in one of the Dark Knight films. But he's, he's in um, two of the Dark Knight films. He is the the mayor of Gotham. That's it. Not that's Batman. It. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is the, the this uh, Batman well aside. I, I think this is my favorite performance of his. It took me a while to realize it was him, and then when I did, it's such a great. He's so good. I mean, talking of creative swearing, salty swear words, Blackthorn, yes. uh, sort of embark on a on a sort of swearing contest as the show goes on. There are yeah. some absolutely incredible insults which we probably won't repeat here, but um, I'll be using them later. Um, <laughs> he's a salty sea dog, um, maybe even saltier than Blackthorn, and the two of them have this great dynamic and uh, swear at each other. Very ways. salty at one point. Yes. When he gets plunged into the brine. That's, but pretty, that's, salt, yeah, that's pretty salty. Yeah, just in case. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the seawater is salty. I just wanted you. to make that clear <laughs> for people. Physics 101 by yeah, Chris here we go. <laughs> Should we talk about Japan? Certainly. Because obviously this isn't this isn't Japan as it is nowadays. Um, and it was fascinating. You know, Rachel Kondo, who is Japanese American, and uh, Justin Marks. You know, they were. I think they were a bit surprised by how much. I think they were hoping that they'd be able to connect the modern Japanese experience to the Japan of sixteen hundred. And they found that the the two worlds were vastly different. Mm. But it is fascinating. But it is it's a show that just I, I adore Japan. I haven't been back for a long, long time. I think I think whenever Nick and I went, two thousand and eight, that was the last time. But I've been a couple of times. It's one of the greatest places on earth. It's it's just extraordinary. Um and this just has lit a fire under my backside to not to travel back in time because I would be dead within seconds, I think. Uh, but to try and go back to Japan again is just an extraordinary place, isn't it, Nick? It is. We went to uh, the Studio Ghibli Museum. We went to a ninja-themed restaurant. We did. Where the uh, our menus were delivered by ninjas or ninja uh, out of a secret uh, trapdoor, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, none of that, sadly, is in Shogun so far. But no, I'm sure, not I'm yet. Sure, I'm sure a ninja restaurant will turn up before not the yet. end. Uh, there are ninja in Shogun. I don't think that's a huge spoiler to say. There's one behind you right now. Oh. He's gone. <laughs> it's fine. There he goes. Shinobi. But yeah, it's, it's an amazing place and like a, just a completely unique culture unlike anywhere else on earth. And um, yeah, I just think it's, uh, it's kind of captured so well in this show. Yeah, very much so. Jimbo, you ever been? I've never, I really desperately, desperately want to go to Japan. Yes. Uh, and this made me really want to go to Osaka. Yes. Did we go to Osaka? We did. Or did we go to Kyoto? Yeah, Kyoto. Kyoto. Yeah, we went to Tokyo, and then we we went to uh, Kyoto. Uh, we went to Hiroshima. Yes, we we went know, to a, we went to another restaurant where we sat on a boat inside a shopping center with a lagoon around it. We did. And we, we were given fishing rods to and, catch and maggots, yes. with which to catch our dinner, and we failed to catch anything. Yes. So we went to another restaurant and bought some food. <laughs> <laughs> True, story. True story. True story. Yeah, there's lots of different themed restaurants in in Tokyo, particularly. I'm sure there are in other cities as well, uh, where you know it, there's a gimmick. So the very first time I ever went to Tokyo was in 2005. Uh, for a friend's wedding, a friend of mine who who moved over there and uh, lives there to this day with his his wife and, and kids, and uh, and they took us to try and stave off jet lag because of the time difference because it's it, it, it's brutal because you're twelve hours ahead I think or eleven or twelve hours ahead of the UK so when you land in the middle of the morning you're just absolutely all over the place and you have to try and stay awake you have to keep going till about ten p.m. so he took us to this place where it was like a dungeon themed restaurant. What he didn't tell us was that halfway through the meal, 
that uh, they would simulate a monster attack on on, on the place and you were in your individual cells having food and then a monster would just leap through the window and paw at you with, with monster hands and just attack you and grab you and then run away again. There were sirens, the place was pitched into darkness and it was absolutely terrifying. It's a lot of experiences. Yeah, a we lot went of to, experiences. We went to a theme park on the 40th floor of a skyscraper. We did, yeah. Namjaland and found yes. a six foot high ice cream cone. We did Next find to the it. Cat of Enlightenment. so good. Uh, yes, it was so expensive as well. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't buy it. Uh, we were, we were just lowly film journalists. But it's just an extraordinary place. Great people, beautiful. If you're going to go, try and go in April because that's cherry blossom oh, season. Cherry blossoms, and that is the most beautiful time. Oh, I want to go back. I want to go back, Jimbo. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> now let's do it right now. Let's pitch up to Heathrow. <laughs> throw immediately. Let's do it. Let's you go. You can almost get through the book Shogun on the plane if you start reading at takeoff. Hey, you can watch the entirety of Shogun. Yeah. If you had all 10 episodes, mm. which people don't at oh. the moment that we're, they're listening to this. But they will. So come back at the end yeah. and tell us how it worked out. Well, also, it finishes in April. So you could wait until the entire series oh, my drops, word. Cherry Blossom load it all up onto your Disney Plus app, and then head off to Cherry Blossom, uh, Osaka, Cherry for Cherry Blossom, Blossom season. Yeah, uh, while watching the entire show on the way there. <laughs> Here we go. We've planned all your holidays for you. There we go. Let's do it. We should, we should open a travel agency. Should we, we really do should. this? Should we do like should we do a little spin-off Shogun tours, and we can we can do this, and we just basically just charter a plane so you can fly to Tokyo, and we take people in completely the wrong direction until someone has to run after yes. us. And yes, we will get lost terribly. Yeah. yeah, I think this is a great idea. All right, so before we go, what else can people expect then from Shogun, folks? Battles. Yes, there are battles. Yeah, it's a very talky show, and it's uh, you know it's actually quite a still quiet show a lot of the time. But there are also some banging action scenes. And uh, episode three, I won't give too much away except to say the kind of that one let's rip with the action mm. and it's kind of multiple stages of the action there's a really great boat uh, driven scene which is which is phenomenal that's a, that's a, uh, yeah the, the boat sequence to which you refer is a lot of fun mm. uh, it's really well done and I think uh, Rodriguez and uh, the Anjin Blackthorn come into their own in that yeah yeah and you've got archers with flaming arrows you've got ninja assassins so you've got all that stuff as well as the the power gaming if that is power gaming a thing, power games is a thing. <laughs> Why not? So Why not? I've invented power gaming. You're welcome. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, on that note, on the creation of both a new company for ourselves and a new game for Nick, uh, that's it for this very, very special preview of a Shogun in association with Disney Plus. Uh, this co-pro if you will, Jimbo, with the Planet TV podcast. Very, very exciting. If we haven't convinced you to do so already, and hopefully we have, uh, make sure you do check out Shogun FX's brand new series, which you can do exclusively on Disney+. And of course, 18+, plus subscription required, T's and C's apply. But anyway, that is it. That is definitely it. All that remains now is for me to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, Nick Desemlian. Goodbye, Chris. Goodbye, Nick. Goodbye. Uh, it's goodbye from James Dyer. Sayonara, Chris. Sayonara, James. And it is goodbye from me. I'm off to my nearest travel agents. As Puffy Amy Yumi once sang, Tokyo, I'm on my way. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Pilot out.